uh, a couple of things before we get started. Uh, the, the first thing is I am uh, coughing and sputtering today, and uh, I woke up, I think, in worse condition than I was in yesterday. So I am trying to, uh, I just sang the bass instead of the high notes, because those high notes will go right to my throat. And also, it's my first day trying to uh, teach with my new uh, completed cataract surgery. So I can see my notes, but if there's a, a problem, they may have to switch glasses and things and uh, do some stuff like that, but uh, uh, that's, what's, that's what's happening. If the coughing and sputtering gets bad, we'll just stop the lesson early. So uh, Zechariah chapter 3, 7 through 9, and then uh, maybe uh, get into uh, chapter 14. Uh, we uh, pick up the reading, Zechariah 13, 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares Yahweh of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it will be in all the land, declares Yahweh, that two parts in it will be cut off and breathe their last, and the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire and refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say Yahweh is my God. So last week, as we looked at the beginning of uh, chapter three, uh, we saw the fountain uh, that was opened for sin and uncleanness. And remember since chapter nine, the prophecies are compressed into the last week of Jesus's life, beginning with the king on the donkey riding in. We saw the crucifixion, we saw the mourning, we saw the, the conflicts with the, the false prophets, and, and then uh, based on the crucifixion, we saw the fountain open uh, for sin and uncleanness. That fountain is open and, and never is stopped. So uh, we've, as we've gone along, We've looked and we've said, well, we're in the gospel age. We're in the age when the gospel is going forth. We'll see uh, other passages in chapter 14 where uh, rivers are going out and uh, living waters are going out. That's, uh, that is uh, gospel language. And so we come to uh, uh, another section in verse 7 through 9 that I've called Yahweh declares and executes his sovereign uh, purposes. If you'll notice in your versions, uh, these verses may be marked off uh, separate. The typing may be different. It may look like a, uh, a poem, uh, and uh, that is in recognition that it, it may not be a narrative or prophetic session, section, uh, but they're almost uh, 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 poetic. One of the commentators says uh, uh, it's a short poem, and uh, it's very similar to uh, some other passages, but it also demonstrates without a doubt uh, God's sovereignty and the salvation of uh, sinners and the striking of his own son uh, to accomplish uh, salvation. It shows that he's sovereign in salvation. There are, uh, again, Trinitarian undertones. He strikes the shepherd, and we'll see that it only can be Christ, his, uh, his companion, his neighbor, his, his close one, and then the, uh, the passage also uh, has powerful allusions to the book of Revelation. The, uh, the gospel age from fulfillment is the shepherd is, 
is struck for our salvation, but we'll also see that the shepherd is inaugurated, but the shepherd will also return. And uh, uh, our studies in Revelation show that. Here's this great conflict going on, and uh, the Christ will return at the end, and uh, Yahweh uh, will rule and reign. So the first thing here is Yahweh's sword in action, verse 7. There's a picture of stirring up, awake, awake. And he says, uh, awake, O sword. Uh, Yahweh rouses his sword uh, for action. If you just follow that picture, maybe you could see a person reaching across their body and pulling out the sword. It's an it's a action that shows there's a, a definite plan. Uh, something is going to be done. There's a, a purpose behind it. And then the object has two descriptions, uh, my shepherd and uh, my associate. Uh, several different translations say my companion, uh, the man who stands next to me. It means somebody who is uh, uh, close to me. And then note again the passage's connection to the piercing and the wounding, and also to the picture of the shepherds. You remember the shepherds that have been talked about already were evil, wicked shepherds. Uh, Zechariah 11, uh, verse 4 says, Shepherd the flock, doomed to slaughter. The people were doomed to slaughter because the shepherds were, were false. Verse 7, Zechariah says, uh, I'll pick up that commission. I'll do what God says. And he says, so I shepherded the flock that was doomed to slaughter. Verse 8 shows us this conflict, not only between Zechariah and false shepherds, but between Jesus and the, uh, the Pharisees and the leaders of his day. And then uh, uh, he says in verse 8, I annihilated the shepherds in one month. And uh, though there are many, many uh, interpretations or ideas or guesses, uh, we said that Christ fulfills all the offices of anybody who is ministering, the prophet, priest, and king. In verse 15, he describes those shepherds as foolish shepherds. And in chapter 11, verse 17, he says, Woe to the worthless shepherd. So we have seen this idea of shepherd before, but the shepherd here is distinguished by the words, My shepherd. And we'll notice it's God's shepherd who is uh, predicted, he is sent, and he will return. And these verses will demonstrate that to us. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says he's coming. He'll be born in Bethlehem. And it says he's from ancient days. He's eternal. This shepherd that's coming uh, is eternal. He's like God himself. And uh, verse 4 of Micah 5 says, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh. Here is the commission. God says, I need a shepherd that's not like any of the other shepherds. I am going to, from eternity, bring this shepherd about who will shepherd under uh, my guidance or in the strength of Yahweh. Isaiah 40, verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will shepherd his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. This is a, another uh, shepherd passage. Uh, John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Here is the contrast, isn't it? He's not a foolish shepherd. He's not a worthless shepherd. He's not a shepherd that produces a people that could be annihilated. 
He is a good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So he's eternal. And he also, as part of shepherding, lays his life down. Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now, the God of peace who brought up from the dead, who? The great shepherd of the sheep. Hebrews 13, 20. Through the blood of the covenant, our Lord uh, Jesus, through the blood of the eternal covenant, I should say. So here's that uh, word eternal again. And you see that idea. Uh, God and Christ have been planning this. These things have taken place by the sovereign uh, power of God. 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4, uh, a passage or 2 and 4, a passage that rings in, in my ears. Shepherd the flock of God. That's my responsibility as a pastor. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. When is that talking about? When, when is a faithful shepherd going to see the great shepherd of the sheep or the chief shepherd and receive the crown of glory? It's, it's eschatological. It's end times. So there's an eternal covenant. It's sealed with blood. There's a resurrection of the shepherd and a return of the shepherd. And this, the scripture is very clear. And it's all contrasted. It's all contrasted to the evil shepherds that are found in Zechariah. It's obvious that Yahweh's sword was against the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the eternal covenant of redemption was worked out in the Godhead and executed, as uh, it says, in the fullness of time. Uh, it's amazing, isn't it? The, the Godhead decided that this was what would take place. God will do this, Christ will do this, the Holy Spirit will do that, and then we'll execute it in the fullness of time to save rebel and needy sinners, sinners that were hopeless and helpless. And you see the contrast. What a danger for a shepherd to come and lead those people uh, astray. The chief shepherd is going to come. Those who are saved, we'll see later, those who are saved pass through difficulties and they're helped uh, uh, until... Uh, the time uh, uh, that they're taken to be with him forever. Uh, one uh, commentator, David Barron, who's quoted by somebody, talks about the sword. And he says, upon whom shall it fall? Not upon the wicked and the ungodly, although the wicked and the ungodly will be judged. But in this context, he says, but mystery of mysteries upon him who is not only absolutely innocent and holy, but who stands in the nearest and closest relationship uh, to Yahweh. He says, it's my friend, my neighbor. It's Christ. It's my son. He's the nearest relationship. And that brings us to uh, the second object, right? First, the shepherd, and now my associate, my companion, the one who stands next to me. Uh, uh, one of the Commentator says, he whom God calls his neighbor, that's just one of the ways you could uh, translate it, cannot be a mere man, but can only be one who participates in the divine nature or is essentially divine. And our summary passages show that. How, who, who could be resurrected from the dead? Only, only God could resurrect Christ. Only Christ could resurrect. He's the, the firstborn of many brethren. His resurrection speaks to our resurrection. Who could plan to return at a certain time and, and to give uh, uh, glory and uh, salvation to anybody? No one else. No one else fulfills the descriptions or the qualifications that, uh, that we saw. We also see in this passage the declaration. It underscores 
The sword is awakened. It's pulled out of the sheath. It's held. It's ready to do what it's going to do. And it's going to strike the shepherd and the companion. But is it sure? Is that really what's going to happen? Well, the next part, the next part makes sure that we understand that declares Yahweh of hosts. And we've seen this over and over again. You probably say, well, I'm, 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 I'm getting the point uh, that when Yahweh declares it's going to happen. Well, that's, that's the idea. And uh, we've said it before, but Jeremiah uses it 50 times. So we, we, can't, we can't say, well, you're saying that an awful lot. Well, well, so did Jeremiah, because God declares everything that happens. Yahweh declares, and he controls all the hosts. And uh, Daniel 4.35, out of the lips of Nebuchadnezzar this comes, he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can strike against his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar, you're too proud. I'm going to make you a special example. You're going to be driven out into the, into the fields. You'll be acting like an animal. He says, oh, I don't know about that. And it's not, it's not until a year later that all that exactly happened. But that's Nebuchadnezzar's reaction. Oh, I don't. I don't want to be. I don't want to be out in the field covered with dew, with fingernails, all nasty. I, I'm. I'm the ruler of this giant kingdom. I don't want that. No, you're going to do exactly what God's will uh, uh, has you to do. And afterwards, that's what He says. And that's the heart. That's the heart of a believer, isn't it? On earth as it is in heaven, what your will be done. Your will be done. That's the heart of a true believer. Your will be done. Not, oh, I have this will, I have these plans, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. James says, don't start saying that. What should you say? If the Lord wills. You know, we don't, we don't want to drop that out at the end of every sentence. Well, we're going to have a service this morning, God willing. We're going to, I'll see you tonight, God willing. All right? We don't want to drop it out at the end of every sentence, but we have to understand uh, uh, that's what it is. The declaration declares Yahweh of hosts. And then we come to the amazing prophecy. I, I use the word amazing, but maybe there's some other word. The amazing prophecy is, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones. The context of the fulfillment is the Last Supper. But remember, remember the sovereign control that Jesus had over the supper. What did he tell the disciples to do? Before, before the supper, what did he say? Where are you going to go? Go into the town? You're going to find a guy? You're going to say, right? Happened just like he said. What did he do when he was going to do the triumphal entry? Go into the town, what are you going to find? And people are going to come and tell you, don't take my donkey. Uh, that's, this is sovereignly ordained by Christ. And the context is interesting. They ate the meal. The new covenant sacrament was revealed for the first time. And they finished the meal. Judas is out of the picture. They sang a hymn and they headed to the Mount of Olives. And then it says, Then Jesus said to them, Here, here they are. They just ate a meal together. John leaned on his breast. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of how, how Christ communicates affection and everything, isn't it? 
Don't push those children away. Let them sit on my lap. We have to know that, that Christ is tenderly affectionate in a physical way towards people. He loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, didn't he? He sat at their, at their house and talked to them. And that's what's going on. And here they go out into the darkness, out towards the, the place where they're going to pray, if they knew that or not. They just had a nice meal. This new covenant was inaugurated. They sang a hymn together. And he says, you will all fall away because of me. Because of me when? Sometime? No, he says, this night. Can you imagine that? And then he says, for it is written. What an amazing thing, isn't it? What an amazing thing if I said persecution is going to come to Titusville today and nobody will show up at the evening service. Persecution is going to come to Titusville and all of you will hide and run away. You'd say, what? Just that. But then he says, for, for it is written. Can you imagine that your abandonment of Christ is being told that it's so definite it fulfills a prophecy? It's, it's shaking. It's shaking to your soul to think about that. If we know our hearts, we know that we have doubts, we know that we have sins, and we know that Satan tells us you're not going to make it. And Jesus says, you will all, one, fall away because of me this night. And it fulfills the prophecy. I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Fulfilled prophecy is coming right now, tonight, and you're going to do it because of me. Uh, we looked at fulfilled prophecy a few weeks ago, and we had that under uh, five headings. So we... Technically, we could add a sixth. All scripture is inspired by God. We know every scripture is inspired. The original prophet knew that it was God's word. The fulfilling prophet points to it and says it's written or it's fulfilled. Or Isaiah said or Jeremiah said. He points to it. And then scripture speaks as a unity. It, it doesn't contradict one another. The Old Testament and the New Testament are together. And that's the idea of prophecy, isn't it? It's showing us it's all connected. And, and then fifthly, we said if we saw only one fulfillment, it still is a true fulfillment. You say, well, the, the Matthew is filled with prophecies fulfilled. But this other book only has one. But that is as strong as a book that's filled with them. Because that is telling you that God's work is fulfilled. The sixth one that we could add, add in this place is Jesus' view of what was written. He is uh, uh, under our uh, third head, a fulfilling prophet. He is like Matthew saying, Isaiah said. He's like Paul saying, it's written here. He's like any of those. But he's different because he is the incarnate word. In a special sense, he wrote it before it was said. In a special sense, he is connected. In, in, a, in a sense, when he says it, he's underscoring this is what is written in the, in the, the Old Testament. And he brings it all together. Jesus, as the word of God incarnate, validates all of God's word. So we could add that as a sixth thing. He's a fulfilling prophet, our point number three, 
but we could also say when Jesus says it's fulfilled, that underscores it uh, even more. And then it is fulfilled, Mark 14, uh, 50, uh, they all left him and fled. That is the uh, fulfillment of the prophecy. The secondary object, I will turn my hand against the, the little ones. Uh, the sheep are always affected by the striking of the shepherd. Uh, this case was no different. Uh, they're all gone. Uh, uh, Mark actually adds that little uh, thing. There was a the young man had the cloak over him, and they went to get him and grab him, and he escaped naked out of there. That's uh, that little extra piece. Even other people who were there, who were not the disciples, and some believe that's Mark's personal testimony, even people that were there who were not the disciples fled. And so you see that you see what happened. Judas comes. There's this little incident with Peter and the sword. Uh, remember, uh, uh, John says, Jesus said, I am he, and they, they all fell back. I don't think that was miraculous power that knocked them down. Uh, but in the darkness with all these, uh, all you had was uh, uh, torches and stuff. Uh, they're like, he, wait a minute, he's this close to us. Here's, here's this guy that performed miracles. Here's this guy that did all this powerful stuff. And uh, I believe they, they said he's right there. And they just fell back. I don't think he magically knocked them back. That's a personal, uh, personal thing. But that happens. And then all the disciples say, that's it. We're out of here. And, and, and then you, you can see uh, by the texts, Jesus is standing alone with the mob, with the soldiers, with the swords, with all that other stuff all by himself. Some of the disciples regain some courage. Peter and John end up right there where he's having the, the trial. Uh, other times there's uh, disciples who demonstrate uh, uh, some kind of courage. John chapter 11, Jesus says, let's go again into Judea. And Thomas stands up and says, the disciples stand up and, and say, uh, they were just trying to kill you. Why go back there? And Thomas says, Let's go with him that we might die with him. He doesn't know all he's talking about. He doesn't know that later on he'll get this, this name, Doubting Thomas. But he's talking about loyalty, isn't he? He's talking about intention to follow Jesus till death. So that, that's, uh, that's what we see. Uh, uh, notice the, uh, uh, the, uh, the little ones are struck. Think about the, the Emmaus Road disciples. They are confused, aren't they? They are, they are disheartened. They don't know what was going on. And they explain it. They say, are you the only person that's here that doesn't understand what's been going on? Jesus did all these things. He did all this stuff. He, he, we thought that, that, that this was it. And now he died. And then to make matters worse, the confusion is that some people said, he rose again. And Jesus in his own inimitable way says, foolish and slow of heart to believe. What does he say? All that the scriptures said. And uh, turns them around, corrects them, and they go racing back. So we just want to uh, make a note before we see our th next point. Just note in the recent passages that we studied, the clear teaching of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. Who, who pierced Christ? Who put him on the cross? People, 
Peter says it in the Acts chapter 2. You crucified Christ. You're guilty of his crucifixion. But was it God's plan? Yes, it was. It had to happen under God's plan. Peter says it was a determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. Right? Some people have an erroneous view of foreknowledge. They think that, well, God looked ahead and saw things that would happen and then ordained it. That is not true. That is a lie. That means that God is dependent on actions that he sees and then makes them happen. That is false. That is wrong. From the beginning of time, from eternity, he declares everything that's going to go on. You start going down that road, and what happens to prophecy? What happens to the promises of God? Well, they might be fulfilled. They could be, but if God looks down the corridor of time and things don't work out, then he changes? No, that's wrong. It was his plan to do it. Jesus was pierced because of the plan. The fountain was open for sin and uncleanness. It was the plan. And, and he's saying right here, whose fault is it that they abandoned Christ? The disciples, out of fear and out of everything, they left him. They just left them there. But was it ordained? Was it planned? Was it fulfilled? Yes. And Paul, Paul leads us into the, the question, well, then how am I responsible? How am I responsible if, it's, if, if, if that's the case? And Paul says, don't argue against God. That's what the scripture says. You believe that. You believe that. Well, Lord, we couldn't help but leave. No, that's wrong. But it was fulfilled. They'll look on him who pierced. They'll mourn for him. But God's sovereignty, there's a fountain open. Awake the sword. Who struck the shepherd? Well, they all wanted to. They all wanted to. They did, by wicked hands, crucify him. That was their plan. Get rid of him. But whose, whose purpose was it? Whose purpose was it to pierce Christ? It was God. The two things, the two human responsibility and God's sovereignty are running in, in a track. Spurgeon says they're friends. You can't separate them. They're always there working together. And you say, well, I don't understand that. Well, that's because it's God's ways and not our ways. Uh, there, there have been people that take that thing. Anything that God doesn't do, anything that God does that I don't understand, that can't be right. Oh, oh, oh God did this and God did that. Well, that, I don't think he would do that. Well, that's because you have a God that that you've made up in your mind, you see. Oh, God's sovereign? He saved some and not others? Oh, I don't believe that. Well, that's because you don't believe the God of the Bible. He chose a nation. What part of that don't people understand? He chose a nation. He chose an entire race of people. And then people say, oh, I don't, I don't believe God elects people. I don't believe there's chosen. Well, what about he chose a whole nation? What are you going to do with that? So sovereignty and man's responsibility right there. And then verse 8 and 9, and this is, uh, this is beautiful. There's separation and ultimate salvation. And this has uh, like revelation themes and revelation ideas and illusions all over it. Uh, Trap says national sins bring national plagues. Heinous sins bring heavy punishments. Uh, notice uh, in verse 8. And it will be in all the land, declares Yahweh, that two parts in it will be cut off and breathe their last, and the third will be left in it. So here's, here's a, uh, 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 what's going to happen to uh, uh, humanity? Uh, so it's in all the land. Once again, it's a declaration of uh, 
Yahweh. And remember, we're in the gospel age time frame. Uh, some, sometimes the, the, uh, the questions come. Is that devastation when Rome came? Is it the devastation in the Maccabean period? There's some things that, that we can't put our hands on. But there are writers who say, well, it had to be. It had to be when Rome defeated Jerusalem because we're already in the gospel age. We can't go, we can't go before that because what we've seen. There's five or six prophecies that we just covered that are fulfilled in the last week of Jesus' life. We, we have to be past that point. It can't be the Maccabees. That was before Jesus came. It can't be this other thing. That was before. So if, if you take other views, then you're jumping back and forth. We talked about that before. You're jumping before the, this or you're jumping out to some age that, well, only thing could happen if everything changes differently. That, so I hope that's as, as clear as it is to me. The, so the destruction of uh, Rome in 70 AD, there was devastation. Some writers who believe that say there, there possibly was. Two-thirds of the people were displaced or killed or the, the, that's where they fitted in. Uh, but there's also uh, here the destruction of all God's enemies in the end. And that is, that's revelation stuff, isn't it? What has Russ been teaching us for, for years? Here's this cosmic battle going on. It's not physical battle, it's cosmic. All those churches are told. Doctrinal purity, personal piety. That's what you have to maintain and endure to the end. If you're, if you're, if you're not doctrinally pure, doctrinally sound, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is what? Truth. What happens nowadays, people take the postmodern view, right? Oh, well, you believe that about the Bible. And I believe this. And other people believe that. Three things cannot be true at the same time. And you can say, well, what about the differences? And what about this? You are sanctified by the truth. God's word is truth. Yes, sir. And... And if you look at 1 Timothy and Titus, he tells them as young pastors, you tell them the truth. You tell them the things that you know to be true. You, you use the truth to uncover falsehood. How could you say that Hymenaeus and Philetus have shipwrecked their faith unless there's truth? Oh, we just agree to disagree with Hymenaeus and Philetus. That, that's wrong. There's truth and there's not. You say, well, that's, that's kind of... Bigoted, that's kind of narrow. Well, tell anybody that there is only one person who could save their souls, and it's only Jesus Christ, and every other religion is false. Tell them that. You'll find how quickly doctrine divides. Doctrine divides, people throw out there. Well, you cannot say the simplest thing about the Christian life that will divide. And what did we study before? Jesus did not come to bring peace but a sword. Because the gospel will divide. The smallest truth of the gospel. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus said he's the only way to salvation. The smallest truth. If that's a small truth, it's not really. So, so there's these strong illusions. A th Revelation says a third of the rivers are going to go away. A third of stars are going to go away. A third of mankind is going to go away. And we can't take it literal, right? It's not like... It's not like God said, okay, okay, there's a third of these people. Okay, there's a third of these stars. Okay, there's a third of this, third of that. No, 
It's illusions and pictures to what's going to happen, isn't it? If you, if you think about it, even if, the, if it's not literal, a third of the stars, just the picture of a third of the stars disappearing is catastrophic, isn't it? Just a third of the people in all the planet. Now, two or three, two or three billion people, it's catastrophic, isn't it? Just the picture. And also, also what fits in here is the, the number three is a, a powerful uh, prophetic number. And all these things, <coughs> that's the first one. All these things point to the finality that's shown in chapter 4. But these verses point to their own uh, finality. Here's judgment. Here's the preservation of God's people through persecution. Here's spiritual war. Here's testing like gold and silver. Here's the true people they call on God in their trials. <coughs> They call on God in the trials of life. The, the, the result is acknowledgement of the relationship. Notice, notice how it moves to verse 9. I am your God and you are my people. That sounds familiar because that's what God's been saying all along. That's what I'm going to have. And, the, and the, the end result is that's what I'm going to have. Titus says, a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. That's what he's going to make. And that's what is going to happen because... Uh, God has declared it. The people are going to say, you are my God, uh, Jesus is my Savior. And it underscores uh, the idea that we already saw in chapter 12, 2 through 9, and 13, 1. Here's a battle, judgment, revelation of what God's doing. Battle, judgment, revelation of what God's doing. So two-thirds are removed. One-third is left. And that brings us to the, the scope of verse 9. And I will bring the third part through the fire and refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. And you say, well, that sounds familiar. Uh, and that's what Peter says in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. It's God's sovereign work. Notice, I will bring, I'm going to put this third into to the fire. I will do this. And we should be thankful for the I wills of God. I will refine. I will test. First Peter 1 Peter 1.7 says that the testing of your faith, you, you, you have trials right now. The testing of your faith is to, is to get rid of what's not good. What is the goal? It says, to the praise, to glory, and honor, when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that really fits, doesn't it? If, we, if we're saying we're in the church age and God's going to have a remnant of people that he's going to purify, that fits exactly. That's what he's going to do. The refined, tested, and persevere, persevering remnant. The letters to the seven churches, what are they doing? The refined, tested, and preserved remnant. All the bowls, all the, uh, the trumpets, all the seals, that, that goes in a circle, doesn't it? All the testing and trials to what? Jesus Christ returns. Here comes trumpets all the testing and tribe till when jesus christ returns here comes seals all this stuff until when jesus christ returns that that's uh, uh that's what's going on uh, they will call on my name the correct name they didn't call they didn't call on idols anymore remember there was passages that talked about that no more idols 
You're not going to call on idols anymore. I will say, you are my people. And they will say, Yahweh is my God. If you profess Christ as your Savior and God is your God, this text has applied to you. God's purposes have been worked out in your life. You have seen the truth of Christ. You have seen who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, the stricken one. He's the one everybody ab abandoned. He's the one that was pierced. He's the one that opened the fountain for sin and uncleanness. You've, you've seen that. And God has always had a plan and a purpose for his true called out people. He never said everybody's going to be saved. Never said this is universal salvation. Always said broad road leads to destruction, narrow leads to life. They'll pass through many dangers. They'll pass through all sorts of difficulty. They'll be tried and tested, but God will bring them home safely with that confession in their mouth, Yahweh is my God. And we should uh, contemplate that and rejoice uh, in that. Well, we can just go a few minutes because we come to uh, chapter 14. Uh, chapter 14 is interesting. And just a, a few things about that. When Luther read and studied Zechariah chapter 14, he said, I give up uh, because I'm not sure what the prophet is talking about. So here we go, right? No. 500 years since then have helped. Uh, uh, believe me, otherwise I wouldn't stand here. I'd say, you know, you're on your own for chapter 14. But uh, that's what he said. And the final chapter is designated in a number of places in a very interesting way. Uh, the heading, uh, the heading in the, in the LSB Bible says, Yahweh will be king over all. In Philip's commentary, he says, the Lord will be king. And the heading is verse 9 that we, just, that we just said. I will bring the third part through the fire and refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, Yahweh is my God. That's the kingship of God in his people, isn't it? It's the ultimate goal of all history. And even Webb calls chapter 14, the Lord comes and reigns. And so since we made it through without much coughing and sputtering, we'll just pray there and maybe that'll whet your appetite. For the ultimate goal of all history, the Lord comes and reigns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your mercies that are seen in these passages. We're thankful for the glory that's revealed about our Savior. We're thankful for the, uh, the powerful way that we've seen your sovereignty at work. We pray that you would help us to be those who would say, Yahweh is my God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.